you have to believe before anyone else does. And that's the one defining characteristic of someone who has a chance at least of being successful. And that's to believe in success before it's evident. Hi, everyone. I'm Reg Lascaris, and welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to entrepreneurs, leaders who influence the way brands are built, big brands and small, as well as people who've had an impact on the advertising industry. So, the story starts way back in 1983, when two young guys, short on cash, but big on dreams, decided to start an advertising business. Who are these guys? Well, funny enough, one of them was me, and the other, my partner, John Hunt. And although I've taken a back seat, John is still involved on an international basis and is the creative chairman of TBWA. So I thought it would be fun for the two of us to catch up and have a chat about our journey and what the future looks like for advertising. How's it, John? How's it, Reg? How are you? Fine, thanks, and you? <laughs> so when we first started Hunt Scars, did you ever think we would succeed? Well, um, the first observation was that I thought that was a long shot, but we must have worked very hard because if I compare the amount of hair I have now, those <laughs> early shots in 83, I'm going to have to say uh, that was all due to incredible hard work and not my natural bald patch just growing. Well, funny enough, I'm catching up to you fast, but uh, I'm still not there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when we when we wrote down our vision to be the first world class agency out of Africa, we had no clients, no offices, and no money. I thought we were crazy. What did you think? I think at the time, you have to believe before anyone else does. And uh, I heard in your intro you talked about entrepreneurs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that's the one defining kind of characteristic of someone who has a chance at least of being successful, and that's to believe in success before it's evident. And I think between you and I, we probably, uh, and deep down, the logic wasn't too good, but we really did have a dream. And I think if you can dream sometimes, that actually becomes a reality. I think we were very lucky, but obviously, as you say, we put a lot of it, and maybe it wasn't stuck in the back of our head or something. We shared some very funny moments together. Do any stand out for you? Uh-oh, that's this is a family <laughs> show. Um, I, I think the maybe, and that maybe part of the success was that we did have a good time while we were trying to be successful. And I think um, having an ability to laugh, particularly at yourself, is another good characteristic to have. And I remember a first presentation in those days wasn't digital. So we were driving to the presentation in the back of your pretty terrible Toyota station wagon. <laughs> and for some reason, the the back lid swung open. And there down Commissioner Street went all the layouts for our great presentation. So we presented to the client with tire treads on some of the layouts. We still won the campaign or won the business, but we really did have a good laugh afterwards. So. We did, and I remember when we got to the Jovic Country Club because we didn't have any offices, you went a lot in because <laughs> you didn't have a tie on. That's right. And I, we I, had a way yes. to borrow a tie, uh, which wasn't the easiest thing at the Jovic Country Club. 
I'd forgotten about that one, Richard. Quite yeah. well. I, yeah. I thought I was looking very smooth in those days because it was winter. I sported what I thought was a very natty scarf, only to be told by the doorman to step aside. As the clients we were presenting to all went into the presentation room, I was barred from entry and told that unless I could find a tie, there would be no presentation. Uh, and so not only were we late, um, we kept them waiting, but as you say, we managed to win that. I think it was our first or second piece of business. That's right, yeah. I even remember it. It was Aerolite. Yeah, that's right. Um, which in those days was a very big brand in, in South Africa for sort of ceiling insulation. But I don't know if you remember our first office. Uh, we only had enough money to make the reception or to build the reception and make the reception look good. But behind the reception, there was nothing. It was just open space. And I think we had enough money to buy one or two desks. So it became like a bit of a Hollywood stage. So we made very sure that no one went beyond a certain point because there was nothing beyond a certain point. Well, now we would call it industrial open plan. <laughs> yeah. So it could be quite groovy, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a, I mean, you make a really good point. Often the, the perception is the reality and, we had this sort of honeycomb entrance. So you walked in and we had three different beach umbrellas, if I remember correctly, because mm. um, our colors then were red, yellow, and blue. And the clients immediately thought that was very original, not realizing that's all we could afford. And they went straight from the beach umbrella reception into the boardroom, having mm. no idea that there was absolutely nothing behind. Uh, and that memory serves. That went on for about four or five months before we managed to then build you an office and me an office. That's right. Boy, that was exciting. And I don't you remember, you remember the joke about it? Would you like a cup of coffee, big or small? And we hoped the client would say big because we had the huge mugs built. And then we used to bring them in these massive cups of coffee. And that helped us break the ice because we were nervous. I forgot about that as well. I mean, I think the listeners have to understand when we say massive, it was probably about a, a pint of tea or coffee. <laughs> you could get a normal little cup or literally a pint of, of tea or coffee. And again, sounds a bit sort of silly in, uh, now, but in those days, clients loved it because it just how often can you make it drinking a cup of coffee or a cup of tea different? And that opened them up to be a little more creative or perhaps a little more open-minded for whatever we were going to present to them. And Correct. It, it worked. It worked. I'd forgotten all about that, right? No, it did work. Did work. We Remember, we also had a researcher lady who couldn't say La Baguette, and we were presenting for La Baguette bread, and she kept saying, and now La Baguette is such a wonderful piece of bread. I love La Baguette. Uh, we didn't get that one, did we? Yeah. Classic case of the work can be great, the mood can be terrific, but if you can't pronounce your client's brand properly, you ain't going to get very far. Correct. So, John, what do you think our first real breakthrough was? In my memory, probably being asked to make a TV commercial because we hadn't really made many TV commercials, and our first one was for product called Big Jack Pies, and, the, and then the Premier Group, which was a then a huge conglomerate. And the 
commercial was a couple of cowboys sitting around a fire talking about uh, when a man gets a mighty big, big hunger, hunger. Yeah, he needs big jack pies. And it wasn't the world's greatest commercial, to be honest, but it, again, it gave us confidence and we could tell clients, A, we do TV commercials, not just print and radio, and B, for big snappy clients like Premier Milling. And, you know, there was a big building block to the next and the next and the next. So it didn't win any awards. But for the confidence of the agency, just to see your work on TV um, suddenly made us stick our chests out and feel we were very important. And then one day BMW came and knocked on the door. And we didn't have the business, but they asked us to do an ad in retaliation to Mercedes-Benz's ad where the car fell off a cliff. Do you remember that? I do, very clearly. That was really interesting because in South Africa, still today, but even more so then, what could be deemed as competitive advertising. Comparative. Comparative. We weren't allowed to do anything that knocked a competitor but there we had this, which was, I have to admit, a, a very fine ad from Mercedes of going around um, Chapman's Peak. It was a true story. Someone had driven over the, the edge of the road, fallen whatever it was, 150 meters, and survived thanks to the brilliant engineering of Mercedes. So what we did was took exactly the same area, same set of bends in Chapman's Peak, but we avoided going over the edge and said, you know, shouldn't you rather drive a car that beats the bends? And then all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose. Now, I remember we ran all the ads on a weekend because no one could get hold of us on a weekend to make them take them off. And I think we must have run it 25 times or something. But then on Monday, all hell broke loose. And we were accused of cheating and, and doing naughty things and the ASA and the LMNOP and all these people wanted to ban it. But boy, did the client get a lot of publicity out of beat the bands. Yeah. And we can still argue today, the bands we meant is spelled B-E-N-D-S. So I still have no idea why people would see it as in any way comparative. No, absolutely. No, what comparative? What comparative? Uh, <laughs> to me, one of the standout ads of, of all time for us was uh, when we did the mouse on the steering wheel, the other BMW ad, which I just would start it up, I think, as a print ad. Is that correct? Yeah. It was one of the lower rung three series, which they were very proud in those days that had just got power steering. So, again, give you a marker of time. And they said, could we please do a print ad that announces this? Now, obviously, you could announce it, but it's very difficult to be demonstrable, you know, demonstrate something in a print ad. So the print ad was okay, but not really great. And I felt a bit of a, a sham going in and, and presenting the, the print ad and asked a couple of guys to work with me to maybe do a, a TV ad, even though the budget would be ridiculous. And um, hats off to BMW, they loved the mouse ad so much that they said, if you can do it, go and do it. If you can't, you're paying for it. <laughs> and the um, the big mystery was not one mouse, but we ended up using 14, and peanut butter was how you train them. So the mouse would run across the dashboard. Each week for six weeks of training, they would have the 
peanut butter smeared further and further away. And um, voila, that was the commercial that gave us international status. But the mask that qualified you gave a name to, I think you called him Fred Astaire. I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but you gave him a name. Well, he's the one that danced the best, so Freddie had to be. He was the master roared. And then we did some great work for Standard Bank, and we did some great radio ads. But what do you think the most controversial ad? Phew. <laughs> Quite a few to go by, but probably the one that might stick out the most was when, of course, after BMW, we won the Nando's account. In the early, early days, uh, Robbie Brosen came into the agency when there were only three Nandos in the world. Now, I think they have about 1,500 around the globe. And we built up a terrific relationship with him in saying you'll be the world's first irreverent brand. And probably the height of the irreverence was what became known as the Blind Lady TV. Correct. Where... Um, we famously or infamously uh, walked, a guide dog walks the, the little old lady, the blind old lady, into a pole. So the <laughs> the, the dog, I'm, I'm blushing even as I say it now, <laughs> so that the um, <clears throat> the guide dog can eat the old lady's takeout Nando's. Uh, that got the phones ringing a little bit. The wonderful thing with Nando's in that, period was South Africa itself was a pretty grim place. You had apartheid, you had this not pleasant environment, and uh, what South Africa needed in the 80s was to learn how to laugh at itself and how to not take itself so seriously. And in this doom and gloom, here was a brand, in one way, taking it like it is and just being very um, irreverent and of like street humor, not talking down to its customer or up. Just, you know, we used to say, ain't that so, Joe? When you finish the ad, you go, yeah, that's, that reflects the truth. And that's really what we did with Nando's. Okay, so what was one of your highlights in the early years? One of the things that we did that was maybe a little different to anything else? In the end, I guess you go to the work because we, as a agency, were growing pretty fast. And I think we managed to create a dynamic culture which let people be the best they could be without making them cookie cutters. And um, from that came the wonderful ad we did for Reach for a Dream where um, one of the boys in my son's class had cancer, was a survivor, came back, but of course had no hair on his head and all the boys in his school shaved their hair so that he wouldn't feel awkward when he came back. And um, we turned that true story into a example of the wonderful foundation that is, you know, Reach for a Dream, where they help kids who have had, um, you know, gone through serious illnesses and give them hope by holding out the potential of making a dream come true. And um, that established reach for a dream like nobody's business and to this day they still my figures might be wrong but it's something like six dreams a day that they bring alive for kids so that's the one thing 
that makes me feel the best. Yeah, that, that was absolutely fantastic. But also I remember the peace accord. You remember when South Africa was on the brink of exploding and we were asked to come and do the marketing for the peace accord, how to sell peace to a country in a year. And in fact, at the end of the year, when they did the research, the peace symbol, the two doves, was better known than Coca-Cola, which was, a, I think, a fantastic thing as well. And then, of course, Mandela, the first election, AIDS we did. And we were the first agency to ever launch a constitution. I mean, that's different. Yeah, I mean, when you want to, I guess, tell your children and your grandchildren, what did you do, that period was the real eye of the storm, where it was creating the the blue and the white dove, which I'll remind you was then used as the symbol for South Africa's first time back into the Olympics. That's correct. In the Olympics. We didn't even have a flag yet. That's right. So that was the symbol that was used. Then we have, we did the first you know, Nelson Mandela election. Then on the back of that, the huge AIDS uh, initiative. Then on the back of that, launching a constitution in those, whatever it was, five, six years, we saw a country evolve and played our small part in it more than most people would see in a, a hundred years. So it, it was both tiring and an incredible privilege because that really was the birth of the new South Africa. I, you're right. I think you were, it was an incredible, incredible privilege. And I'll never forget it. And we were so lucky. So if you go back all those years, would you have done anything differently? I might have taken a few more holidays. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, the, the wonderful thing is uh, I wouldn't change anything meaningfully because you ricochet along and the momentum that you create by sort of doing things wrong as well as right. You know, you we did a lot of things incorrectly ran into walls at 100 miles an hour. But those are the things that you learn from. So to be too, you know, circumspect about, well, I think we could have done this better or that better, I mean, perhaps. But if you look at the whole arc of that story, you know, it was fun. We, in our own little way, made a dent in the universe. So there's nothing I would really um, – change i don't think Roach. and you no no not me no, i wouldn't have changed anything in fact you know you always remember the good things and we had so many good things i can't actually remember many of the bad things except maybe having no money but apart from that uh, it was just an incredible ride do you have any regrets no because you know, i think regrets are a, a waste of energy you should have learnings and you should certainly be able to go, whoa, I'm not going to do that again. But to live with regret is quite an energy sucker. And I think, um, you know, best you move on. And I think most people who are not just successful but happy, I think, have found a way of not living with regret. Learning from it, yes, but not living with it. I agree. So let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about awards to you. More important, can or DNAD? And which one did you value the most? Yeah, I mean, it's impossible really to say. I would put both of them up there in the you know the top three or four. So um, it's not really a case of one is better than the other. One is a little more different, slightly different criteria or complexions, but they pretty much have a muchness now. 
But they're still the two premier award programs, would you say? Yeah, particularly from a South African entry point of view, they have a higher cachet probably than some of the others, yeah. Now, what, what happened to all the awards? I think you, you didn't throw them away, but you tucked them, you closed them in a cupboard, didn't you? You put, put them and said that was yesterday or something. Yeah. We, we reached a stage where, um, you know, we had these awards in cabinets and awards on bookshelves and awards in, I mean, we just had awards everywhere. And I began to worry that people coming in, new people joining the agency would think sort of the job was done. And, you know, oh, don't we think we're such a big deal? Look at all these awards. So I actually came into the agency very early one morning and took them all out the cabinets and off the shelves and crated them and put them in the basement. And everyone came in like, what? You know, and we made a, a commitment that, you know, the journey was just beginning as opposed to, um, all complete. And I think that helped maybe some of the, the newies in the agency to understand their role was to keep making us, you know, first class or world class or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it, yeah, it seemed to work because we got a turbo boost thereafter. Do you think awards still matter? Yeah, I think they do. I think you shouldn't overcook them. A client employs you as a business relationship. So you have to do work that impacts on whether it's the image, the bottom line, whatever the brief is. So, that's the first priority. Where awards come in handy is it gives you a, an honest appraisal of peer-to-peer -peer quality. I think South Africa was a little bit parochial back in the 80s when we started, and international awards make you compare your work to the best internationally, so I think that helped us. And I think there's a place for it in terms of benchmarking, but I wouldn't overcook it, and I wouldn't say that's the only thing. You know, clearly it's not. You know, client wants value for money um, and a, a return on his or her investment. But I do remember we had a lot of fun at awards ceremonies. I remember having dinner underneath the table, not on top of the table at one awards ceremony. I don't know why we did that, but we did it, and we thought it was very funny. Moving on again, <laughs> what does advertising look like now in the COVID world? I mean, that's a very open-ended question, Reg. You know, can't sort of give you a one, two, three, and that's it. But certainly what we're seeing globally is, I guess, a kind of a mood swing, you could you call it. Consumer has definitely been battered about for all the obvious reasons. So I think advertising has to be a bit more empathetic. I think you have to understand the headspace of your consumer. And it's a very lumpy thing because – if you speak to our folks in China, they talk about COVID almost in the past tense. If you in South Africa, we about you know, especially Gauteng, you're going through the third wave. If you, I was just on a call before this with America, they feeling wow, we're moving quickly back to normal. So advertising has to be very, very specific about who it's talking to when, and I think the clients who have a listening ear, whether that's on social media or, you know, what we call now traditional media, I think will probably win the day. Be a little more empathetic and understand it's not one size fits all anymore. But advertising, as we all know, promotes consumerism. And does that clash, in your opinion, these days with the environment? Because obviously a lot of the more we push consumerism, the more in a 
many ways it affects the environment. What do you think? Yeah, that's the big unsolved riddle. And more and more, uh, forget clients, you know, people coming to work in your network say, what is your sustainability plan? What is your view on this? So it's a little bit the immovable object hitting the irresistible force. I think that's going to be over the next five years, that and how work we create, albeit successful, having a negative effect on the environment, is that success. So it starts a whole chain reaction on clients using less plastic, renews, you know, do you need new fashions every year? Why don't you just hang on to the jersey you bought this year? And so on and so on and so on. So it's a huge, huge mind shift, and it'll be the most debated topic for the next five years, in my opinion. Mm. Tell me, do I sound like a client service person asking all these questions? Am I, am I doing a good job? An excellent job, Reg. You do sound like a client service person. That's not necessarily <laughs> a negative. <laughs> Thanks, John. Okay, so, so what's happening on a pan-African basis? What are we doing on a pan-African basis? First of all, there is a huge move, which there wasn't 10 years ago, to actually have pan-African networks, pan-African products. The banking services have gone there. Of course, the very big one is MTN. And um, what probably I'm most proud of in the most recent future is Pantascaris did an incredible Wear It For Me campaign across 18 countries, so begging you on behalf of your mother to wear a mask and to social distance and to behave properly. And it had huge impact, huge impact, billions, literally billions of viewers and responses. So I think you'll see also in the next five years more and more clients looking for pan-African branding, pan-African solutions, because it's becoming the unit in and of itself, slower than we had thought, to be honest, 10 years ago but it's definitely getting there. And these days in a digital world, does TV advertising matter? Should you be on TV or is everything going digital? Digital is definitely accelerating and getting a bigger, bigger chunk of the pie. But TV or what you might say these days, video or film, because you watch that TV on your TV set, on your phone, on your computer. So that component is... Some days film, some days the TV commercial, some days content. Um, that's not going away because we love the visual and we love to be hypnotized by an audio visual as opposed to just one or the other. So I think those who say, you know, it's the death of TV, it's um, premature. I think TV's just going to have lots of little babies and appear in different forms. So, John, we're running out of time, so I have to wrap up now. But in conclusion, here's a quote from Albert Einstein. He said, logic will get you from A to B, but creativity will take you everywhere. Cheers, everyone, and goodbye. Goodbye.